Welcome, everyone. So with tonight's uh, talk, I am going to continue uh, my commentary on the words attributed to the Buddha Shakyamuni. This is from a sutra called the Magga Vibhanga Sutra. And what is right intention? Being intent on renunciation of suffering, goodwill, and freedom from harmfulness. This is called right intention. Our second reading, as you know, I like to throw a couple other in there, at least two. A truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. William Blake. Finally, so here I am asking forgiveness and praying that you'll understand. Don't think I take you for granted. I know just how lucky I am. Though you deserve so much better, you won't find devotion more true. Because girl, I've had the best intentions. I've had the best intentions loving you. And that is the best of intentions by Travis Tripp. <laughs> so tonight's talk is about the power of intention. And uh, this talk was inspired by one of our clergy, a uh, member, fellow member of the Order of the Dragonfly, and a dear friend. And uh, basically his question was around, you know, some people say, uh, particularly, he asked me in social justice circles, things like that. People say intention doesn't matter. It's impact that matters. Or something like um, he heard in a staff meeting, uh, which was to hell with good intentions. <laughs> so uh, I think we've got a lot of, that's a word that, you know, once again, it gets bandied about quite a bit. And as you know, I always say we must define our terms. So what is an intention? Well, it's very interesting what intention really means. And part of this meaning is, is easily understood when you actually look at the presentation that uh, is made by the Buddha, Shakyamuni. And there, interestingly, the word intention can also be thought. So when when the Buddha is using the word intention, he's also using the word thought or thoughts. Now this particular uh, passage from this this uh, sutra is where uh, traditionally uh, it's considered by the Southern Asian schools of Buddhism to be the first sermon or Dharma talk by the Buddha Shakyamuni, which he gave at Deer Park. And in it, he lays out what are known classically as the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And you should know that while that's a very popular presentation, it's not the only one, and that the Dharma is presented in many diverse ways throughout this, the millennia. Um, basically, doing it for two reasons. One, for uh, reaching an audience. In other words, there's an intention. 
what's my audience and how is my audience going to respond what will they respond best to and also always striving to bring about some sort of new way of, of seeing things and understanding things so therefore you know that's a very popular teaching so I'm not going to go deeply into the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path tonight, but I am going to start by talking about right intention or right thoughts, which is one of the, that's considered the second uh, of the Eightfold Path. And essentially the Four Noble Truths, without getting into it in great detail here, is just sort of laying out uh, what we would call the three principles of oneness. And that those three principles of oneness uh, lead you to nirvana. And the practices that lead you to nirvana, uh, that are based on the three principles of oneness, are the practices um, that we traditionally talk about, or not traditionally, but we talk about in our school as clarity, uh, compassion and action, and contemplation, based on the three principles of oneness. So, uh, right intention, and what, what is meant by right here? I think that's important to talk about a little bit. So when you hear right intention, or right speech, or right view, uh, what that means, what the word right there means, it, it means that it's, it's what works. And so there's always an emphasis uh, of practicality in Buddhism. And the word that's sometimes used is upaya, or skillful means. So right action or right speech, whatever. It, that means that whatever works best. And the idea of noble, because you have the, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path, uh, kind of can be boiled down to my one-liner, which is, Life is really rough, but you can choose to live nobly. <laughs> and that noble path leads you to liberation and nirvana. So when we're talking about right intention, it's really important to note that it comes second after uh, the right view. And what is the right view? Well, the right view is essentially the three principles of oneness the reality of our interconnectedness and the way within we work with change and how we understand the nature of the self and how we express this through compassion. Okay, so that sets us up for it. But it shows us that intention is part of clarity. It's, there's a three subset, you know, if you take those eightfold paths and you break them into threes, which is clarity, compassionate action and contemplation intention and right view uh, are part of the wisdom or clarity uh, section so it's it's really important and and what does the Buddha mean by it well in this this same sutra you know uh, there's a description where he says that the right intention or thought is threefold so the first is the intention of the renunciation of suffering. So Buddhism is often called a path of renunciation. And, and sometimes people think that means some kind of ascetic uh, idea, but it doesn't. What it means is that we recognize that 
suffering is something we don't want to experience anymore. We want to be free from And we recognize that suffering, unlike pain, is optional. And so we make vows and we set ourselves upon a path to free us from the experience of suffering. And we believe that is possible. If not, there'd be no point. And you might say that in some sense, that is the raison d'etre or the very basic meaning of all the teachings. They should all lead to the freedom and liberation from suffering. But it's important to understand, too, that suffering doesn't mean pain, either emotionally or physically. And so Buddhists are very clear that when they talk about suffering, they're talking about something psychological. They're not talking about an emotion or some kind of physical reaction uh, to my environment or some sort of stimulus. That's something that we share with all beings. But, but suffering is something, according to the Buddhist teaching, that only a sentient being of a certain level of self-consciousness can actually experience. So the first is the intention of renouncing suffering. And so the first thing I'm doing with my intention is I'm very clear that this is why I'm doing what I'm doing and what I don't want to experience anymore. And so I'm I'm setting myself on this uh, maga or path to liberation. The second is the intention of goodwill, and the third is the intention of harmlessness. And I think that uh, the way we present it in the four directions system of mindfulness is very clear and kind of puts those two together, because when we're not intending to cause harm, then that moves us from there into uh, what some people call bodhicitta, some call it the desire for awakening, but I also think of it as the, the, the desire to be able to help other beings. And so I think that sets the basis for what we might call goodwill. Is that I don't want to just free myself, I want to free all beings who are suffering. And, and we call that the way of the bodhisattva. And he says here that these three are opposed to three parallel kinds of wrong thinking. And that is thinking governed by an outcome, thinking governed by ill will, and thinking governed by harmfulness. And again, I think you can combine the second two together. But the first one is really interesting because it talks about outcome. And I'll explain a little more what that means. So I think the statement that the Buddha is making is very clearly coming from a non-dual non-dual sense that arises from the wisdom of oneness and out of that wisdom of wisdom of oneness comes forth great compassion and when we're talking about intention I think it's really important to recognize that in that the intentional function or the function of intention in our minds uh, is very different it's very first of all let's just say it's crucial uh, that intentional function is the crucial link that connects our cognitive experience with our modes of, of engagement or action in the world so how we're thinking and how we're acting acting it is intention that creates the link there 
okay and setting an intention is different than a goal because the goal is always oriented towards a future outcome but our practice is to be ever mindful of the present moment the now and we we know there's a flow to things we experience time and space but we we're always bringing ourselves back to what we're going to call the now or that eternal moment and and we set our intentions based on the best of our ability to be clear and then our actions reflect that value and that clarity now the other thing you have to know is that the Buddha was all, always saying that it is our conditioned habitual tendencies that produce negative effects inside our minds and also in the way that we act in thought word or deed and the problem with this is that it it essentially can confuse people in the sense that they confuse what I would call intention versus goal making and intention versus impulse so for example a lot of people think of intention um, but it's it's not really intention it's more what I would call an impulse and I'll, I'll try to give you uh, an example of that but an intention is responsive and when I say the word responsive it means it's thoughtful it's it's contemplative it's something that we have worked with to try to have a sense of clarity to make sure that we're not acting out of delusion no matter how powerful that delusion may be and that when we act impulsively it's a reaction so for me a reaction is something that's conditioned and happens kind of automatically and almost unconsciously whereas what we're talking about here with intention is completely conscious but often what I see is that folks will kind of confuse that and they'll use the word intention and what they really are saying or describing is an impulse so for example let's say that I I am observing two people interacting and and somehow during the course of that interaction I observe something that I believe maybe is unfair so my impulse at that time might be to make things fair and so I might intervene or inject myself in the conversation because I don't think it's fair but that's an impulse I'm not aware why I don't think it's fair I haven't examined why I don't think it's fair I'm just working from an automatic conditioned impulse and so some people might say that was my intention but it's not from a Buddhist point of view from a Buddhist point of view it's a reaction it's an emotional reaction to a situation not a disciplined contemplative response because that conditioned contemplative response is going to require me to go deeper and when we 
talk about intention, there's a very specific meaning for it in the way we teach it here in the Dragonfly Song. And that is to help us to understand two big things. One, the difference between harm and hurt. The understanding of what we mean by vows. And if you ever read about the Buddhist tradition or you become part of the community or you would study to be a priest, you'll find there are a lot of vows. And so intention is connected to vows. Intention is connected to the idea of the difference between harm and hurt. And furthermore, it's, it's, really, it's really about understanding why we do what we do and the connection between the intention that we have and the action that we might take or not take and the consequences that flow out of them. So let me... Um, let me start with that first part. So what's the difference between harm and hurt? So for us, the difference between harm and hurt is akin to the difference between pain and suffering. In the sense that hurt is something that I can't avoid any more than I can avoid pain. And it seems that being conscious is painful. that you can't have conscious awareness without experiencing pain. And any of the other things that are involved in being a conscious or self-conscious being, such as our experiences of attachment to things or experiences of aversions to things, I mean, that's just part of being human. And we can't avoid that. Likewise, we can't avoid being hurt and we can't avoid hurting others. And I hurt others just as a part of my ordinary existence. Like right now, inside my gut, there are all kinds of organisms that are destroying other organisms and feeding on other organisms. Life feeds on life. And then that goes all the way up the totem pole. And so it's we're hurting machines. We just, we can't help it. But the difference is intention. The difference between hurt and harm is intention in our tradition. Harm requires me to have an intention, to have a thought process behind it. Now that thought process might be delusional, but there's still a thought process behind it. There's, there's pre-planning in some cases behind it. And this is not foreign to us in our understanding of things. For example, in our courts of law, you're, if you commit or you're alleged to commit some kind of crime, your intention has a lot to do with how the crime is defined and it has a lot to do with how the sentences or the, you know, the punitive things that come out of it are assigned. So we're, we use intention a lot. And it's not this idea, the Buddhist idea of attention is exactly the same. So it's not something unique or foreign to us, but it's not something I think we think about enough. It really means a lot. Like, for example, if somebody says something to me when they're angry, it hurts me. 
But if I know their intention was to to harm me, well, that, that makes a big difference. <laughs> and I, I might have to reevaluate that relationship. But if I know that there, there are things that they said in anger or what have you that hurt me were not intentional, it wasn't their intention to cause me harm, and it doesn't bother me as much. In fact, it opens us up to a new form of dialogue and reconciliation. So the difference between harm and hurt is very powerful. The other thing it can do is it can be a solve. It can be a sort of um, healing balm to those of us who are way, take way too much responsibility for everything that happens. And we're way too hard on ourselves. You know, I, I use that Travis Tritt song um, because there's a guy saying, you know, you know, I'm sorry for not living up to what I hoped I would be. And he's apologizing for it, you know. But at the same time, he's saying, you know, my intention was always to love you and my intention was always this. So what he's saying is, and teaching us in that little song, I believe, is that once we set our intention, we have to let go of trying to be perfect. We have to let go. And it's hard, I'll tell you, for me. <laughs> it's very hard. When I, when I realize I've hurt someone that I love, oh, man. I mean, I feel really bad. And I, I, I really, you know, at first have a hard time letting it go until I know the other person's okay. But the fact of the matter is, if my intention is clear, then I really don't have to do that. I mean, I can care about the person that I've hurt or feels that I've hurt them. But I can't control what they do with that. In other words, if they turn that hurt into suffering, I can't do anything about that. I can care about it. I can try to help them to be free. But I can't, I can't do that. So I can't really make someone else suffer. I can only make myself suffer. And I can't really free someone else from suffering, but I can help to show them the way for them to experience it themselves. But the point is, is that for those of us who have a lot of anxiety at times, or we're always taking responsibility for everything, and every time we say something or do something that hurts someone, we just kind of go, oh, oh my God, you know, and, mea culpas it helps us to kind of chill out a little bit and realize that look you make a mistake you know you make amends you put it behind you but it takes practice it takes a lot of practice so that's the that's one aspect of intention the other is the idea of vow and this also relates to our uh, travis tritt song that, you know, that's what an intention is. An intention or a vow in Buddhism is not so much something that you keep or you break, like some kind of law. Rather, it's like the star, you know, if you're out at sea and you're, it's the star that guides your ship. And, and, it, and the practices are like having, you know, a compass that you can use even when you can't see the star. So it's, it's a way of guiding us. So intention also guides us. Third thing I want to say about intention, and this is probably going to get more to what my friend asked me, my fellow clergyman asked me, and also a little bit to what William Blake was saying. 
And that is something that actually comes out of a story. Uh, and it's one of my favorite stories. It's the Buddha Shakyamuni talking to his son, Raula. And uh, Raula uh, want, asks his dad, who happens to be the Buddha, you know, how do I, how do I know what, you know, is right intention? And Buddha says, well, son, it's actually very simple. And so he says something that becomes the basis of what we call the three pure or three clarifying precepts. And these are precepts that we can ask ourselves when we're going to do something. And if we can answer those precept questions in the, in the correct way, then we're free to do it and not worry about the consequences or worry about the outcome because we don't have control over that. All we have is control over our intention. So what does he say to his son? He says, before you do something, consider your intention. Is your intention to cause harm or to create benefit? And then ask yourself, will it benefit yourself or not? And then ask, will it benefit others or not? And he says then to him, if it is not harmful intent and will be beneficial for all, then go ahead. But then while you are doing things, keep considering if they are beneficial to you. And if they are, it's all right to continue. But if at some point you find they're not, you can change your mind, man. <laughs> you don't have to keep doing the same thing or doing the same thing over and over expecting a different result. So how do we do this? How do we, uh, how do we keep considering whether or not they're beneficial? So, and this kind of goes back to the question that this person was asking me and they heard someone say, you know, to the hell with intentions, I'm just concerned about impact or, you know, that kind of language. You know, it's very, usually very emotional. If you ever notice that someone uses that kind of language, it's very emotional. And of course, we know that all emotions are driven by thoughts, whether they're conscious or not. That's the problem. Because unconscious thoughts that are a reaction can create very powerful feelings. And sometimes even if what we're sharing might be evidentially true, what did Blake say? A truth that's sold with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. So what it's saying is even if something is you know, from an evidentiary basis, true, let's say. Everybody agrees that it's true. How you do it, which is your intention, makes all the difference in the world. Have you ever noticed that some people enjoy beating the crap out of people with a truth? They use, they use truth and the words that they use like a club to beat their enemies down.
And what happens when you're, you're acting out of a conditioned mode where there's no thoughtfulness, there's no con contemplation, there's no reflection, and you're just kind of fired up on those emotions, just like I used that example earlier where I perceived something was unfair, and I'm going to make it right. Well, I might be moving on delusion, or even if I'm right, what's my end goal? Is my end goal to beat the crap out of the person that I think is doing wrong? Or is my end goal to help free all beings from their suffering? What's the skillful means? And this, this is where I want to dig in just a little bit here. So the th here's the thing. It's the difference between being heuristic and hubris. A lot of people who think they're right, and we might call them self-righteous, and maybe even they are right. Maybe even what they're saying is true. There's a big difference between a heuristic approach and hubris. Hubris is arrogant. Hubris knows. Hubris is judgmental. And what is, what is being judgmental? Being judgmental is when I have an opinion that's no longer open to new information. It's no longer open to changing. Even though change is the universal energy in our lives, judgment is when I have an opinion, and baby, it's not open to any new light. And when that happens... I find myself in what I call the twin horns of the human dilemma, where I begin to practice confirmation bias, and I start to practice cognitive dissonance. Confirmation bias is when I'm not open to anything that might challenge my preconceived notions. In other words, like it's when people say, it's settled, right? Remember when you were a kid and your pet, you'd be arguing with your brother or your sister and your parents would come in to intervene and they'd say, that's it, it's settled now. No more conversation. I don't want to hear your side. I don't want to hear your side. It's settled. Well, we get that all the time, right? And God, it breaks my heart when people say the science is settled. What? So that's what happens when someone is coming from that hubris point of view, that sort of self-righteous sort of, you know, flag-waving point of view. They, they are really, from the Buddhist perspective, filled with judgment. And they're practicing that confirmation bias and the cognitive dissonance. They reject any information that might come to light that would challenge their beliefs. And you can always tell when you're you're having a conversation or a debate with someone like that because they a confirmation bias quickly dissolves into ad hominem attacks. It quickly goes away from the subject to kind of attacking the person. And that, in fact I would always say I've always said and I used to lead debate teams and I've I've trained debate teams and I was a debater myself. I love debating. Nothing I love more than a good argument. And one of the things I learned very early on, if I if I can get that person to start attacking me personally, then I know I'm, I'm already on halfway one. 
I've already got them. But that's what happens. So what can we do instead of this hubris? Well, we can adapt what we call a heuristic point of view. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have opinions, and I might have really strong opinions. That doesn't mean I can't be passionate. It just means that I know that any opinion I have ultimately is always open to changing because I know that everything is constantly changing. And so, therefore, my opinion can change. You know, sometimes today in our current pop culture, we judge people by the way they felt or thought about something two decades ago. Well, I don't know about you, but my opinion's changed on a lot of things. And it's continually changing. And it doesn't mean I'm wishy-washy. It just means that I, I can have strong opinions, but I know that I'm, I'm not omniscient. And so, and I know that the truth, in, at least in my opinion, the truth isn't some sort of thing that you find and then you just spend the rest of your life defending it. The truth is something that you're constantly wrestling with. You're constantly exploring. And I often think that that's really what the heart of the spiritual life is about. It's about wrestling with things. You know, in the Zen tradition, they call them cause. And when we adapt this heuristic point of view, we're not dogmatic. The hubris view is very dogmatic. We're not dogmatic. We can have doctrine in the heuristic point, but it's always open to change. There's humility. Humility. And how do we go about doing this? How do we go about knowing what the right intention is? Through daily practice. Daily practice of uh, practicing clarity, practicing contemplation, and practicing compassionate action. I'll leave you with a, a, a story about one of my teachers, uh, Bernie Glassman, a very well-known and revered Zen teacher. And I remember when I was working with him, and I was on the board of directors for a short time with the Zen community of New York, and I was with Bernie at the beginning when he was founding his Zen Peacemaker Order. And I remember being with him and someone, and one of Bernie's focuses was on working with the homeless. And I remember someone interviewing him and asking him, you know, well, you know, do you think you will end, you know, do you think what you're doing will end homelessness? And, and Bernie said, yes, of course. Why would I be doing it otherwise? And the guy said, really? You really think you can end homelessness? He said, yeah, that's my intention. But now remember, that's my intention. Now I have to let go of the outcome. And that's the difference when you have an intention. It's not like a goal. And remember the Buddha said that? Remember he said, you know, what was that he said? Uh, one of the three things, the problem with not thinking correctly about things is that you, uh, you're governed by the idea of an outcome. And what Bernie was saying was echoing what he used to say his boss's words. That Bernie's intention was to end homelessness, to not see anyone who did not want to be homeless to be homeless. 
And then he would act. And he would act and do his best, all the while knowing that maybe something he was doing, some action he was taking, wasn't really working. So we also learn to see things, and we learn to see things in our practice as an experiment, a creative experiment. It doesn't mean it's going to definitely work out. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. But we're always willing to learn from what we're doing. We're willing to learn from our history. So we don't keep pushing some ideology or some, some agenda just because it's an agenda or it's some ideal. We look at the reality. Is it working? If it's not working, well, maybe we need to take a different path. We need to take a different approach. But ultimately, we let go of the outcome. And that's the best way, especially if you engage in helping others, to not get burned out. Because if all you can have is the outcome in your head, well, you're going to be disappointed and you're going to get burned out because things are not going to work out the way you want them to. And maybe they're not supposed to. This allows you to be present in the moment, allows you to flow with things. That's the beauty and the power of intention. I hope you found that useful.